welcome. And uh, I'm so glad that we're together. And, and let me tell you what my hope is for this series of evenings. Really, uh, during this period, you know how in winter in the UK, we often say that we're deprived of vitamin D and uh, something to do with lack of sunlight and that sort of thing. And I think we as a church family and a Christian community, we're being deprived, not of vitamin D, but of factor F, which is fellowship. And uh, I thought that these evenings would be something by way of providing a forum for us to be in contact with each other. And also, because it would be lovely if we grew, both grow together and grow spiritually and not just kind of sit back and go dormant while this period of lockdown happens. So I thought, what better thing can we do than to take a look together, a stroll through Mark's gospel? Almost, I did think about calling it meandering through Mark, but I thought it sounded a bit ponderous. Tonight's episode, talk number one, is Teal Mark's Get Set. And uh, I want to tee up uh, this series on Mark's gospel. Um, maybe just uh, to tell you a little bit about um, Mark himself and why the gospel was written and what stands out about Mark and how I first came across Mark's gospel, really. I don't normally talk about myself in talks, but this isn't so much a talk as I, I'm thinking of it as a bit like a fireside chat. Um, and if I don't tell you a little bit about myself along the way, how uh, we're going to get to know each other better. I, I became a Christian at university and under God's hand in, in what I now can look back and see as a, a particularly blessed time, really, within the period of about 10 days, as I say, under God's hand, I led at least eight of my friends to Christ. And it seemed obvious as we knew nothing about Jesus or discipleship, that we ought to study the Bible together. And knowing precious little, I just hunted through for the shortest gospel I could find, and that was Mark. And so week by week, in fact, I think we met generally pretty much every day. So it wasn't week by week, it was day by day. We went through Mark's gospel. And I rather dread to think what heresies I might have imparted then. But they've had years to grow since then. So um, they probably got worse rather than better. When I came to London, a friend who was also working in the city, as I was there, I was an insurance broker, said to me, why don't you come with me to St. Helens Bishopsgate? where they do an early morning course and the vicar, a chap called Dick Lucas, takes us through Mark's gospel. And actually, it was St. Andrew's Undershaft and that's where I went uh, for training, really, to be talked and walked through this gospel. And it certainly helped me to form some kind of a structure in my head as to what is this book all about. And the way we're going to view it, as I... Uh, walk us through it and we get into small groups is to see this book as a discipleship manual and there's very good reason why that's a very valid way of looking at this particular book and the reason really is because it's agreed by most that what John Mark is recording here 
is the Apostles Peter's reminiscences of Jesus Christ. That tradition has been held by the Christian church uh, for many a year. Um, it was in fact a man called Papias, who was bishop of a place called Hierapolis until AD 130. It was him who recorded that Mark was a secretary for Peter and wrote down accurately what Peter remembered. And a much more modern scholar, a fellow called Richard Balcom, makes an interesting observation. He says that Peter is mentioned more times in this gospel than in any of the other gospels. And I find this fascinating, actually. Nothing happens in this gospel in which Peter isn't present. Now, what do we know about John Mark? Well, you can do a separate Bible study if you want on him, but there is one curious reference in Mark's gospel, very near the end, actually, Mark 14, 51, where uh, we read this, and it's often thought to refer to Mark. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. This is in the garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And people have often thought it could well be that that was Mark himself. What can I tell you about Mark's style of writing? And just by general way of introduction to help us get our heads around this book as we read it. Well, I can tell you a certain amount. I can tell you that uh, Mark's characteristic style is to write crummy Greek. I'm not a classicist, but those who are say that he writes a kind of pidgin Greek. It's not sophisticated. He has a very limited vocabulary. He's got a very direct approach. His favorite word, which he uses so often that most translations just cut it out, is immediately. A bit like school children joining up their paragraphs. They have a favorite word. And he just writes, immediately this happened, immediately that. And there is this certainly a sense of urgency in a lot of the gospel. There's a, if you read it very carefully, he has little details in his gospel, which the other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Luke, uh, don't have. And the little details are the tells that he was actually there at the event, or he's talking, he's writing from the reminiscence of Peter who was there at the event. Let me give you an example. So in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 18, Matthew recalls that Jesus called to him a child and he put him in the midst of them. But it's Mark who adds a little detail that lights up the whole picture. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said, which, which is sort of pun intended, touching. Or the feeding of a 5,000, it's Mark alone who tells us that Jesus sat them down in hundreds and fifties. And it's Mark who refers to the grass as being green. Well, that's enough of that. We'll come across other evidences of eyewitness very soon. And there are uh, really two reasons why Mark's gospel is considered important or super important. It, it's believed by most people to be the earliest gospel. And written um, as, as the account that others lean on. And that gives it preeminent importance. And secondly, as I've touched on, 
when someone writes something, you want to know what their sources are. And the sources for John Mark appear to have been Peter. So it's the nearest we're ever going to get to an eyewitness biography of Jesus Christ. And with all that by way of introduction, um, let's turn to the actual beginning. And let me read you the beginning of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals are not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So a few observations from uh, this opening chapter or the first half of it. Let's look at the very, very beginning. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want us to notice here that Mark kicks off as he means to go on. The center of this book, the center of the whole story is Jesus Christ. And the takeaway for discipleship here is keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. And why do I say that? Because Christianity is all about Christ. And if he goes out of focus, then our discipleship would, will derail. It's a bit like taking your eye off a road when you're driving. If you do, it'll end in disaster. And a disciple, as you know, is a follower, a learner, but you can't follow if you're looking away from the leader. And you might say, but Rupert, that's so obvious. Well, yes, it is. And no, it isn't. Because so many people's faith derail. And their attention gets distracted in a different kind of way. They're focused. And diversions and interesting topics and disputes and marginal interests can all, can all hamper our discipleship. Identity matters. His identity and yours. I identify as a Christian, a follower of Christ. And if you and I are going to be disciples, we have to be clear that we too are followers of Christ. So here's an opening question. Is Jesus the center of your faith? Not church going, not Bible reading, not theology not the size of your church or the name of your denomination, but Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. 
Now, what does the word gospel mean? What's he on about? The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, this phrase, the good news, is a very precise term. It's not just, have I got some good news for you? It's God's special message, God's truth, God's true message. And it is that God is breaking into history with his story, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now, I want to unpack that just a tiny bit because we're so familiar with saying the two words, Jesus Christ together. It sometimes sounds a bit like if I use my name, Rupert Charkham, the two words go together. Rupert's his Christian name, Charkham's his surname. That's how it is. Well, it's true that Jesus is the Christian name of God. You know, Jesus is. That's his name. But the title Christ is a title, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. And then for good measure, Mark adds, the son of God. And he, he wants his readership to be clear what he believes right from the start, that this is who Jesus is. And I actually think that the way Mark is putting this one on a tee, the way he's teeing it up, is that he immediately is planting into his reader's mind a question. Really? You think? Is it possible? that this person is God's son. And that is a question that comes back again and again and again. And that's a brilliant question. That is what I actually love my friends and people I meet to have to consider. I don't know if they'll become Christians or not, but I want them to engage with Jesus, asking themselves the question, could it be that this is God's son, the savior come in the flesh? And actually, we'll come back to this quite a few times, that it's a question Mark articulates throughout his gospel. Let me give you a few examples. Mark 1, 27, the people were so amazed that Jesus is teaching. They asked each other, what is this? A new teaching in brackets. Who could teach like that? Could it be God? And in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals someone, we'll come back to it, of course, when he got up, he took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all and amazed. Everyone praised God, saying, we've never seen anyone like this or anything like this. And in Mark chapter four, when Jesus stills a storm, the disciples were terrified and said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And eventually we'll get to a climax where Jesus will ask the disciples, who do you say I am? Well, diving into this, Mark introduces Jesus um, through quoting from the Old Testament. It's as if Mark picks up his pen, which is an extraordinary thing, and, and quoting from the Old Testament is saying, as I was saying. And he, he quotes from uh, Isaiah, and he quotes from Malachi. And quoting from Isaiah, he talks about the herald that would come. I'll send my messenger. And you might wonder, you might wonder, well, this John the Baptist chap, what's he doing wandering around dressed so strangely? John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. 
And the thing is, that is exactly the description that you read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, of Elijah. Elijah, who the book of Malachi tells us, would come back to prefigure the arrival of Jesus. So people were reading a code here as they read the beginning of the gospel. They would have understood what Mark was saying, that he was saying, this is the forerunner. This is the one the prophet spoke of that would come before the anointed one. It's a sort of attentional shipping, are you hearing me over, kind of announcement. And uh, I will just make a couple of closing points before we go into our, our small groups. And, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that to, for us to tuck away in our memories about John the Baptist. In verse seven, this was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I am, for thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And what he is recognizing here is that like all genuine disciples, we're servants of the king. I wonder if you know that it was considered such a, a disgusting job to undo people's sandals because their feet were so roughed up and it was so smelly, etc. Not even slaves in Roman times would be asked to do this. So John reaches for this picture and he says, I'm not if I could serve him in this way, um, that would be an honor. I'm, I'm not even worthy of that. Second thing John notices of himself is he says, I can baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we'll come back to this, but what he's saying here is I can cleanse you from the outside. I can give you a good wash, but only he can send his Holy Spirit who can change you from the inside. He, the Holy Spirit can change your heart, that John says, I can't do that. And so really, as he approaches God, he, he sees himself in perspective. And he makes himself small as he worships God who is so great. And I'm going to close this, this sort of these reflections with a lovely story. It comes from quite some years ago, and it's a true story of a previous president of the United States. I can't help saying um, what a contrast this behavior is to anything I've seen recently. And this was Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was a great friend of a man called William Beebe, who was a naturalist. And they were, they were really good buddies. And um, Beebe in his memoirs writes, after an evening of talk, we would go out onto the lawn of a White House where we took turns at an amusing list, little astronomical rite. We searched until we found, with or without glasses, the faint heavenly spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And when one or the other of us would then recite, this is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda, it is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And after an interval, Roosevelt would grin at me and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's retire. <laughs> <laughs>
for the night. And uh, Beebe writes, we must have repeated this little ceremony 40 or 50 times in the course of years, and it never pulled. Isn't that wonderful? And I, I see that something of the way that we approach uh, Jesus Christ, elevating and magnifying him and realizing how small we are and how privileged we are to come in his company and serve him. Well, that's my uh, first thoughts of marked out for great fruit. And I'm gonna hand back to a guy who will tell you uh, where we go from here. I, I can't receive chat uh, or questions through Zoom while we go along, but if you want to contact me with comments or reflections or questions, um, my email will appear at the bottom of the question sheet and that makes it easy for you. Bye-bye for now.